How do my levels look? They look fine. Okay, that's good. Do you want to do an A? Sure, let's do an A. Ready? Um, a. 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 <laughs> a. <laughs> a I realize. Also, is my sniffing really loud? Because I'm really like bugged up. Mm. So wow. loud. Wow. Is it People really loud? To deal with. No, it's fine. Okay. Um, you know what we should do? Do you ever watch Gardner's World? No. What? You don't ever watch Monty Don? No. Oh, wow. Well, you should. It's great. Um, but they just always come upon him in the garden and he's just like, oh, oh, hello. Welcome to Gardner's World. Oh, yeah. Let's do that. Like, just like, oh, you've just caught me. Like, I've just, I've just I didn't know you were going to be here. I was just laying on my bed reading and blowing my nose. Oh, hello. I didn't see you there. Welcome to the podcast, Bonnets at Dawn, where we pit Jane Austen against all three Bronte sisters and sometimes against entirely random authors like Francis Hodgson Burnett. Please take a seat. Make yourself a little drink. No, in fact, I should make you a little drink because I'm your host, Hannah Chapman, Team Austin. And I am your other host, Lauren Burke, Team Bronte. But for this month, we are both Team Burnett. Yes. And, and while I'm your host, Lauren's more like your butler, just for no. this little bit that we're doing. This yes. Would you like me to get you a cup of Yorkshire gold? No, I'd like a cup of Francis Biofacts, baby. Do you see All what, right. Do you see what <laughs> that was good, Bye. wasn't it? We'll do that. We'll do that instead. Because I also feel like I did sort of a crappy job of it last week. And I have so many biofacts for you this week to make up for it. Okay, thank you. Biofacts, by the way, sounds like compost. Carry on. Mm. We just can't get that part right. Yeah, it needs some tweaking. It really needs some tweaking. Okay. Well, let's talk about Francis, shall we? We should. We should. We should get this show on the road. Okay. So last week, I really neglected to tell you about the importance of storytelling in Francis's young life. Um, like all of the authors that we cover on the show, Jane, Louisa, the Brontes, Elizabeth Gaskell, her love of books and storytelling began really early on. She used to improvise stories to like her classmates, like in between lessons or just whenever the teacher was running late um, to entertain them and, just, you know, also entertain her siblings and, yeah. you know, just, yeah. But what you did in the days before Netflix and before YouTube, right? And yeah, and for some people, before really a lot of, I don't know what I was going to say. Yeah, mm. Netflix. Yeah, before Netflix, before the iPad, we <laughs> all wanted to be that. storytellers. <laughs> so um, what I love about a lot of these stories, and this really goes for all of them, is that they were all kind of set up, you know, like novels. They were all serialized, like they all mm. lasted weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, her youngest siblings in particular, Edwina and Edith were big fans of her stories. Her two oldest brothers, um, they actually kind of like used to make fun of her storytelling a little bit. But, you know, what are older brothers for, I guess? That's what they do. That's what they do. But um, Edith was a big fan and would always request 
um, this one story called Edith Somerville, which I'm thinking Edith was named after her little sister. Um, and Edith actually later on in her life was interviewed about her sister, Frances, and she said she was just like her own Sarah Crew. These stories were very romantic. Someone in them would always be forlorn, sickly or miserable, pitiful in some way or another. And there would always be someone else who was brave and strong and helpful. The strong one would have to go through all sorts of trials and tribulations, but in the end, everything would come out right for everybody in a fairy tale sort of way. So there you go. That's Frances's like formula to success. And that's pretty much how her stories work. That's how the shuttle is going for us so far, right? Yeah. I was going to say, it sounds like exactly what's happening. So, cause, yeah. you know, Rosalie's the strong one and Bettina needs lots of help, right? So that was a Vice joke. versa. Yeah, no. okay, so like, wait a minute. I was being, you delivered it so dryly. Oh, it's that British humor. What I know. It? Gosh, the Just old Anne's brother's wit—they call it. <laughs> but the so, old Nigel. Um, yeah, that's pretty much how the shuttle's going. That's how the Secret g- Garden goes. I mean, just that's the formula. So take and that, little princess. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So you guys can just take that, run with it, write a story, use that formula, make millions of dollars. Um, anyway, back to her life story. So um, last week, I think we left off in 1864. Now that was when William Boone, that's Eliza's brother. So Eliza is her mom. Um, he wrote to his sister and you know let her know that he had a dry goods store in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, he had immigrated to the States like a couple years before and I strangely learned this fact this week that the Civil War actually stimulated immigration. Oh, really? Yeah, you'd think that it would keep people away, but apparently people were like, I got to go to America. They are having a civil war. I got to just get in there. Profiteer. Yeah. So, I mean, it did work out well for him. Like, he set up this store in Knoxville and um, actually was doing very well. So he writes to his sister and he's like, hey, I know you're having financial trouble. So why don't you come on over to Tennessee? Um, My store is banging. I have jobs open for, you know, your two oldest sons. I know a place where you can live. Like, we're just going to take care of you. Everything's going to be fine. That's yeah, that's good going. Yeah. So that's why they made that move from Manchester to Knoxville, Tennessee. But travel takes a very long time, right? Yeah. And so by the time they get there in 1865, the war is over. And the South is not a good place to be. Um, It's like literally, I mean, it's literally, it was a war zone. Like the land had been torched. Um, You had over 275,000 slaves in that state alone that were freed. Right. Okay. So you've, you've got lots of people who... People who have either, quote unquote, like left, you know, they were slaves. They were working the plantations. They've either like torched those plantations and left Mm -hmm. um, or sort of just aimlessly like wandering the streets. Like a lot of homeless. A lot of. Yeah. Yeah. No one has anywhere to go. No one has any work. Um, You know, nothing's nothing's up and running. Um, Also, the soldiers who were, you know, kind of keeping that dry goods business in um, like running. They're gone. Mm hmm. So, yeah, um, he no longer, like, has this place to stay. Um, He's like, well, I guess I can give 
one of the boys a job. And um, yeah, he's like, yeah, so I don't know. I don't know what we can do here. Maybe I can set up the other boy with a job in a grist mill in, where is it? In Newmarket, Tennessee. First okay. time I've ever heard of Newmarket. So it's like, I think, 25, 30 miles east. I'm probably wrong on this, guys. Sorry, sorry, listeners who live in Newmarket um, of Knoxville. So he's like, hey, I, I hear of this job in a, a grist mill, you know, he can go work there. I know of this little log cabin. You guys can basically just go stay at over there as well. So yeah, just um, not a great, not a great situation. No, that sounds pretty, pretty rough. Yeah, I mean, you think in a year he's gonna send a letter like, by the way, maybe not <laughs> great timing. Hold off. Yeah, you that's think. a short telegram. That's not a long telegram. Come on. I mean, did they work have out that way? Carrier pigeon. Uh, maybe not a heavy load. something. Just, yeah. you know, find time to just sort of check in with her and let her know. Hey, Face by timing. the way, yeah. this war went really, really badly for us. We lost, as it turns out. Things are rough. Anyway, um, so they moved to this log cabin. They are dirt poor. Uh, Francis is desperate to earn just something for the household, anything. Um, so what she ends up doing is sets up a little school for the children. So yeah, like most of our authors, she does go ahead and start teaching, right? Because I mean, this is like the thing that she can do. Um, most of the children, however, in the area were really too poor to pay her in cash. So right. they would just bring her things like from around the house or from their garden. So like cabbage and carrots and like thread and just you know whatever they could pay her in so it wasn't really like an ideal situation finally Frances gets it into her head that okay she's gonna like send away a story to a magazine she was like maybe i can get like a dollar or two and like Mm -hmm. keep this up people seem to like my stories so maybe i can do this so she writes a story and it's called miss carruthers engagement and she wants to initially send it to Godie's Ladies Magazine. Um, now, Godie's was like just top of the line, right? Like shooting for the stars. This is like her favorite magazine. Um, it definitely also had like the largest circulation and it was the most expensive magazine to subscribe to. Now, she's not a subscriber. She's getting this like secondhand from yeah. friends. Um. But yeah, so she's like really intimidated by it. She's like, okay, I don't know. I have never written anything professionally before. I don't know if they're going to, you know, accept me. So she really like psychs herself out, actually. Yeah. And she's like, let me go to like a lesser magazine. Um, so she ends up uh, aiming for a magazine called Baloo's Magazine. And she's like reading the submission like instructions very carefully, which is great, which is good as a former acquisitions editor. I really appreciate. (laughs) Um, And she's like, okay, like adding up postage, like this was a big thing for her. So she's like, okay, sitting down, like, okay, I've got to pay for paper. I got to pay for postage. Like I really need money. My school's not bringing in money. Um, I think what she ends up doing is like just collecting blackberries like on the side of the road and like selling them so she can get like the exact amount of paper and postage that she needs. Oh my goodness. That's like a big, yeah, Yeah. it's like a big deal. And so she writes down her story 
she sends them a note saying, like, listen, I got to get paid. So you have to send this back. This is, you know, this is my paper. This is like my one paper, a bit of paper. Um, They actually do end up sending it back to her with like some really confusing notes. They're saying like, it's a great story. It's a little long. Um, She is really unclear as to whether or not she should make edits and then send it back. But then she's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to send it into Goaties. Like I want to get into Goaties anyway. So fingers crossed. She sends it to Goaties and they actually respond pretty quickly. But they're like, we like the story, but hold up. Are you British or are you American? Because like the story strikes us as pretty damn British. Now, the reason why this is important is because at the time, a lot of these magazines were just printing like serialized versions of British novels. So a Dickens or a Bronte. And um, yeah, like the market was just like flooded with British material. And Sarah Josepha Hale, who was the editor or editress, as she preferred to be called, um, of Godey's was just like, hey, we um, need to feature American voices. So this was like her big thing. Yeah. And women in particular. So she's like, I like the story, but are you American? What's going on? It came from Knoxville. What's happening? Um, Sidebar. Can I just say that Sarah is actually a really, really interesting figure. And I sort of went down like a rabbit hole with her the other night. Um, Not only is she one of the first American female novelists, she edited Godey's for 40 years. And it was like one of the most influential publications of its day. Um, She was also a huge proponent of higher education for women. And she was one of the founders of Vassar College, which is a big deal. And um, she also might be responsible for turning Thanksgiving into a national holiday. How did she do that? And also, we don't want to thank her for that, do we? Do you want to thank her for that? I I think Thanksgiving's weird. Oh, I love Thanksgiving. It's my favorite holiday. But like, doesn't it? It's a bit... Well, I mean, we could do a whole episode on like the history of Thanksgiving and why it might That's be. That's not what the show is about, Lauren. That's actually. not what the show is about. I will say, I th- what I think is nice is like to have a day set out, you know, every year to spend with your loved ones and cook for them and just be thankful, like you know. Well, and we just do that. Think about the year at Christmas time. Sure, but we do it at Thanksgiving, and then Christmas is all about capitalism. In this country, anyway. So anyway, anyway, um, she did this by, well, I guess Thanksgiving back in the day was only like maybe celebrated in the East Coast, seemed like. Um, It was definitely not like a national holiday. There were only two national holidays. Uh, One was Washington's birthday and the other one was another one that I've forgotten. But um, yeah, so she actually ended up writing to five U.S. presidents. It was like, like, you need to, like, make, make this. this a day. Make this a day. And then eventually um, it happened. Another sidebar. Sarah also had her girl, Catherine Beecher, write short stories for Goaties. And Catherine Beecher is the sister to who? Who do you think? Catherine Beecher's Harriet, the other one. Harriet Beecher's Day. Uncle Harriet Tom. Beecher's Day. There you go. There we go. So... If you guys are playing the Harriet Beecher Stowe game, take a shot. 
Okay. Oh, anyway. I thought you meant take a shot like Hannah, here's your chance to say something stupid. That's how I read that <laughs> note. Oh, okay. And I did. Yeah. I managed because I said the name wrong. Oh, good. Good. Well, well, back to Francis, right? Okay. Francis. So um, Francis writes back to Sarah like, hey, yeah, I am British, but I live in a log cabin outside of Knoxville, Tennessee. And um, they're like, all right, good enough for us. We'll go ahead and publish the story. <laughs> and like, surprise, surprise, she's a big hit. Like, basically, Baloo's magazine was her only rejection in her career. Wow. Or, that's what she says, but... It, it seems to be true, honestly, because she's basically working from here on out. That's amazing. Yeah. So she starts writing regularly for Goaties and then just like really who whatever magazines will take her work too. She's just like output yeah, every day, all day. Yeah. yeah like I'm just going to just make this money. Um, and she starts making enough cold, hard cash that she is actually supporting her family, which is a great thing because in 1870, her mother dies. Uh-huh. I know. And we will leave it there for now because next week we will talk about her love life. Oh, yeah. It's going to get sexy. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to get not immediately sexy. Right. <laughs> Sounds like my life story. <laughs> like if they, the Hannah Chapman movie. Not immediately sexy. That's the tagline. Just, just wait for the later years. Yeah. Yeah. Let's move on to this book that we're reading. What is this book? Yeah. So we're going to talk about some chapters of The Shuttle. I'm saying some chapters because uh, it was... It's hard. It's been hard for me. <laughs> I'm listening to the audiobook, which is 50 chapters. I'm reading the book, which is 25 chapters. I misread the Facebook post, which said we were reading chapters 14 to 28. So I have read chapters 14 to 24. Unfortunately, that does mean uh, any comments you've made about chapters uh, 25, 26, 27, 28 will be discussed next week because... I don't want the spoilers. <laughs> You've just like spiraled into madness. I Yeah, this is like, I just was on mic to Lauren. And I was like, oh no, I've made a big mistake. <laughs> so um, I'll give you a little update as well, actually, because um, I'm almost exactly halfway through the book and I'm four chapters behind. So I don't know what is going on with this Persephone edition, but I feel like if I read up to chapter 28, I'd be like done. It would be over. There's mm-hmm. not a lot left. Yeah. But the summary, that's not interesting. My meltdown's not interesting. A quick, well, my quick summary is quite long. I feel like some things happened this week. Some things happened. It was a, a very pleasant set of chapters. Straight up, straight off the bat, we have some um, The Secret Garden vibes. Betty's going for a walk mm-hmm. in the garden. She meets a robin and she meets Kedges, the old gardener. And he tells her all about flowers and you know that gardening stuff and there's not enough men around and she's like well could you do it and he's like if i had more men she he's overwhelmed by this job yeah he's like well he's old he's got like rheumatism and stuff yeah yeah she goes and tells utred and rosie she's like hinting at some plans that happens she does that a lot she's like oh we're gonna do stuff and they're like but you're american and she goes i know that's every conversation they have she's like exactly exactly uh, then she takes a walk through Stornham Village. 
then goes to the neighbouring village of Mount Dunstan and there she sees a deer and then the deer kind of runs off because there's a hole in the fence. She's just looking at this fence like, oh, deers could get through that and then this deer gets through it. So she is right about everything. Uh, She then goes to look for a park keeper and who does she see? The second class passenger. Oh, yeah. This guy's like dad bod, deer whispering God and he's just Mm -hmm. like... And the deer comes back. It just comes straight back. And then these two spend like a sunny, golden afternoon. They're strolling through the grounds. They're talking. It's dead romantic. She thinks he's poor. He turns out to not be poor because she tries to pay him for his time. And after she spends all this afternoon, like, this man doesn't seem like a servant. And then she tries to pay him. And he's like, actually, joke's on you. I'm Lord Mount Dunstan. I'm sorry, I should have told you. And she's like, yes, you should have told me. Man, like, I cringed on. like so hard. Well, I mean, I knew it was Lord Mount Dunstan, obviously. But yeah. like, when she gave him the money, I was just like, ah, no. Did anyone else get like strong Lizzie Bennet vibes from this chapter as well? She Ooh. walks all the way. So she walks all the way there. And he's like, oh, how did you get here? She's like, I walked. It's like six miles or whatever. Um, and then there's this moment and she goes, oh, if it were mine, when she sees Mount Dunstan, when she sees the house. Yeah. Oh, yeah, she does. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you do. And there are a couple of other moments. Like um, there's a bit where I think it talks about the spark and how neither of them realized at the time that that was the first instance of it. And mm-hmm. then in my book, I wrote, I was in the middle before I knew it began. Oh, nice. Good right? call. Yeah, yeah, cool. Austin, get in there. Um, so <laughs> after this really lovely day, Betty returns to Stordom. And again, she talks with Rosalie about how the old ways don't work. She's been writing to their family. Um, and then we kind of get some more information about the sort of abuse that Nigel's been practicing. So after hitting Rosalie, he completely denies it. And the one witness, which was his mum, she's also like, no, you're a liar. Um, and then he, she admits that he would sometimes be like kind to her and yeah. then she would sign over the money to him. So he was like switching his mood up. She never quite knew what to expect with him. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens. Like if you convince someone that they're wrong again and again and again, then when you say to them, oh, we should try and understand each other because they think that they're insane. They're like, yeah, no, you're right. I am the problem. Like, how can I fix it? Yeah, it's the gaslighting special. He then completely sets her up with this hot young curate called uh, Mr. Folliot who um, he's like they, they're not doing anything wrong really they're just like talking and Rosalie's happy again and she's got someone to confide in and she starts to look better and Nigel starts leaving them alone more and there's a sick woman in the village and then she is told that the woman's dying and so she says to Mr. Folliot in the note she's like I'll meet you in the woods. And then Nigel intercepts it. And then he's like, see, look, I've got this evidence. And he's basically like, no one's going to believe you. And then he starts referring to this guy as her lover. He gets sent away. And now everyone thinks not only is she like American and insane, but also she's a harlot. Yeah. And should we talk briefly about why he might do that? Well, it's it's to stop her from divorcing him. Because he can yes. say then, like yeah. all of all of this is divorce fodder. I'll talk about the divorce yeah. stuff in a minute, but it's really 
what we're getting here is a lot of back and forth on both sides about actions that are being put in place to, to prevent a divorce. Mm-hmm. So having this and having physical evidence means that she then can't, well, he, he's got this thing, right? That will mean that he, he can hold it against her. And there's a great right. quote, and I can't remember if it's at this point, but it's basically that like divorce in America is for women and divorce in England is for men. Mm-hmm. And this is an example of like, Nigel knows that. And he's yeah. like, cool, this is what I need. This is what I need. Um, she also then tells Betsy that she did actually try and like physically run away from him, but he caught her and was like, you'll have to be cleverer than that. And there's this really sad quote, which is Rosalie saying, but who in England will listen to a shabby, dowdy, frightened woman when she runs away from her husband? And I was like, I feel like that's maybe still true. Yeah. So, yeah, hard recap. Mm -hmm. Um, We then go straight back to Betty going all over the house and kind of seeing what changes need to be made. She goes down into the kitchen. She meets um, Mrs. Noakes. Yes, I think so. And like it's this big, old, out of date, almost like medieval kitchen. It's like built for roasting joints and nothing works. And it's just her in there just this old woman and she's kind of blown away by the fact that one Betsy's gone to talk to her two that she's kind of talking about change and understands how stuff needs to work and she's just blown away by it and then she goes off and talks to the footman about it and they can't you know they can't believe that all of this is happening that she's kind of breathing this new life into the house um it's great it's like when you get like a new ceo at your company and they start yeah and they see stuff right it's that yeah they see stuff yeah and they're like oh gosh, you haven't gotten a raise in three years. That's wrong. And then you're like, yeah, whoa. basically. Whoa. Uh, she then also says to Rosalie that they're going to go to London. They're going to go shopping. They're going to go to the theater. It's going to be really good for her. But it isn't just a pleasure trip. And so while they're there, they do make a visit to um, the lawyers that have been managing the estate. Mm-hmm. And what was really nice about the lawyers is that they've kind of got this like professional view on the situation, right? And they can recognize that Sir Nigel is awful they don't know the ins and outs and the personal details. They can only assume that Rosalie's family have kind of given her up, but they know they can see that Nigel's in the wrong and they're more than happy yeah. to help Betty because it, again, with the divorce thing, she's making, she's making a point of saying like, if I go through the lawyers, he can't come back and say, I've done anything wrong because the people right. that manage his estate and his money are like, yeah, this is right. That the family of the heir should help restore the court. Right. I thought this was very savvy of her. Just the whole scene, like she plays it very cool in there and she gets the lawyer to say all the things too. Yeah, because there's the line, uh, no sane man could object to the restoration of the property. To do so would be to cause public opinion to express itself strongly against him. So what Betsy is doing is basically forcing Nigel's hand because if he comes back and objects to this, then it's going to be like, well, why are you objecting to money being spent on your estate? Money isn't being spent on, you know, stuff that isn't useful and valuable to you. So, and and that will help. So it's almost like, well, you've got the letter to the doctor and I've got the lawyers, like pick a side. They're kind of building their armies a little bit in these chapters. They are. And I think the lawyer also says something along the lines of like, Nigel wouldn't want to be publicly in the wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So... Dun, 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 going to war. 
So we then spend a little more time with Salter, but this time we're getting to know him as the unlikely Lord Mount Dunstan. Um, he grew up in London. We find out that the other families really didn't want their children spending time with him. They didn't have many connections. They didn't have much money and they were kind of considered a bad lot. There's a scandal that I don't think explained in either version. No, I just like kept looking for it. <laughs> yeah. I think it's one of those things, again, where it's like it's important there's a scandal, but it's not important what it was. Yeah. Uh, so his father and his older brother flee and then they leave him just in the estate all on his own. And then um, over time, they both pass away. And so he becomes the 15th Earl of Mount Dunstan. He then befriends an old vicar, Penzance, who gets compared to a medieval monk. And uh, Penzance was there when he first becomes the Earl. He tries to help him as much as he can. They kind of go through all of the paperwork and everything together. He's the only person that knows about um, MD's plan to go to America. And he was kind of there knowing the truth of it when others were just kind of speculating that he was off spending money that he didn't have like his father and brother would have done. Mm -hmm. And we start to really get this medieval imagery coming through in these chapters, which I am living for it's so good <laughs> like with with betty we get all of these the original reuben vanderpool stuff but when it's mount dunstan and even penzance gets compared to a monk there's just all of this like ancient like first man pre-william the conqueror like yeah, knights there's... and chainmail. like oh it's so good i said chainmail, which is inaccurate and i'm kicking myself uh -oh. um so back in london betty and rosalie have done a ton of shopping they're doing like a makeover for rosalie she's getting some new clothes she's having her hair done and then when they return to stornham betty starts uh going around oh yeah by the way the uh theater scene is cut i should have said oh it is yeah okay we're gonna talk about it i have, we will. I have I've some got comments it. on it i've got some comments on it too but this is just the, this is a weird recap. I got confused this week. Um, when they return to Stornham, Betty then starts going around the village to employ people. The plan is to hire them to fix the old and broken things. And then that will build up trust that one, they can do the work and two, that she can actually follow through and pay them. Mm -hmm. And then once that's kind of sorted, they'll start working on the court itself. We get loads more medieval imagery, here, especially in the discussions on like the feudal system, the Lord's responsibility to his tenants. And there's also talk about how important it is for the villagers doing the work to be from Stornham and not outsiders. Yeah. And I loved the speech. No Tidhurst man, not yet no Barhurst, nor yet no Yangford, nor Ratcham shall do it if I shall look at if I can look it in the plate. Oh, I can't. Can I say that again? <laughs> no Tidhurst man, nor yet from Barhurst, nor yet no Yangford, no yet. Oh, it's so hard it's, so it's a hard. hard one there's like a really yeah no it's no Tidhurst man nor yet no Barhurst nor yet no Yangford nor Ratcham shall do it if I can look it in the face it's Stornham work and Stornham ought to have it there we go third time lucky yeah yeah and I was getting some strong Gaskell vibes from these sections right it's all about oh, the worker yeah. getting respected getting money for their work um, most of this stuff is cut from the Persephone edition I have some feelings about that. 
then we go back to Betty and Rosalie, who are beginning to interact with the village more and more. Betty to oversee and ask about the work, and Rosalie's joining her, and people are commenting on the fact that she's starting to look a bit better. She's less cold. She's less, um, like, rigid and stiff. Mm-hmm. Betty instructs Kedges, the old gardener, to start ordering loads of flowers and tells him that he's going to oversee the work in the garden and he's actually going to be like the head gardener. And there's this beautiful, beautiful section which is just talking about his experience and his love of flowers and he can't quite believe the opportunity that he's being given and he keeps he keeps saying like, I'm uneducated, I'm poor, are you definitely sure you want me to do it? And she's like, yeah, of course. She's like, first, because you love the flowers. And second, because you are taught by this great guy. Mm-hmm. You know, because he thinks it's like, wouldn't you rather have this other guy? And she's like, no, I want you. It's a very American point of view, too, her picking him, right? I mean, like, no, I value your experience. I don't care. Like, yeah, exactly. Poor. Yeah. Um, then we have a scene of the Vanderbilt parents. Though again, this is mostly cut. Mr. Vanderpool is very happy with the business decisions that Betsy is making. We hear a story of a young woman called Millie, who's American, married a European, becomes Lady Bowen, who meets Mrs. Vanderpool at a party and then says that she's seen Rosalie. Now, I think this is foreshadowing that gossip is eventually going to reach Nigel, right? I've just been waiting for it. Yeah, I feel like he's cutting his trip short and coming home early. There's no way that people aren't going to oh, I hear that your sister-in-law's in town, you know? Right, right. But again, Millie, not in the Persephone version. Then we return again to MD, Mount Dunstan, who meets a typewriter salesman just hanging out out on his <laughs> land. This guy is an American. He kind of, at first he mistakes MD as someone who's down on his luck. He offers him some man-to-man sympathy. And then when MD starts admitting to being the owner of the estate, this younger this young American who's called G. Selden, he gets all riled up and he's angry, but then they reconcile. He gets invited to lunch, which is really exciting because he's basically cycling all over the UK looking at all of this stuff because his grandmother, who was an immigrant from England to America, had like raised him on all of these stories and tales of these big houses. Mm-hmm. There's, um, oh, he meets Mr. Penzance. Would he be Mr. Penzance? What do you call your vicars? Vicar Penzance? I don't know. He meets Penzance. (laughs) He can't get enough of the guy. He bloody loves him. He can't get over his slang at all. Again, that entire conversation is basically gone from the Persephone edition. Oh my gosh. They kept in all of the salesman patter, which I really liked. And I underlined all of it. And I was just like, (laughs) FHB, where did you learn about typewriters? This is so good. Um, and then, uh, yeah, they're all I feel all like she would have had a, like a typewriter salesman hit her up, right? Yeah, I, I reckon. But it yeah. just felt like, it felt spot on. I really liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Penzance and um, MD and G. Selden, they all go for a little walk and they see Betty and Selden's like, hey, if I could just get up to that lady, I could sell her dad one million typewriters and right. that would make fortune. And then the last chapter for me, the last chapter for this week is chapter 24, um, which is just isn't in the Persephone edition at all. So I think this is possibly where I was starting to get confused. 
Mm-hmm. So this is the first entire chapter that we've lost. We had quite a few this week, which were significantly shorter in the Persephone edition. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting that chapter four is cut because it's focusing on Betty's relationship with the villagers and her distribution of gifts and money and favoritism, the importance of employing local people, giving them work, the change that kind of refurbishing the cottages has, um, how by befriending the elderly she's kind of giving them this new lease of life at very little expense to her Mm -hmm. you know like for her this is like this is pocket change right but for these like she's making a tangible difference to these people's lives now she's asked by the vicar's wife mrs bent who i said not to trust right because she's just kind of trying to profit off you did this american money so this week she's all like oh by the way, there's this old lady who I'm trying to send to the workhouse, brackets, to die. Um, can you go over and like have a chat and see what you can do? Because she's like a strain on um, the parish money and we don't want to encourage like other old people to stay in their homes. So Betty right. goes and she meets this like amazing old woman who's fine, by the way, who is keeping her house clean. She's had 10 children. She's got no one left to look after her because six of them died her two sons moved away and her two daughters married and like they they don't have any extra money so Betty just like quietly works out how much money it would cost to just look after this woman mm-hmm. and then she goes back to the vicar's wife and she's like I'm just going to take care of it like we yeah, like, people don't worry people about need it. to be rewarded for for working right mm-hmm. so yeah that that is all all cut and the reason I've got a problem with it is that I think that this relationship with the village is going to be important at the end. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm, and I'm guessing like just the, the reasoning behind it is like they're focusing on the romance. It sounds like. Yeah. But so again, I've got a real problem with that. I think that this is a book about the, um, the relationship between uh, landowners and the people that, that live on their villages and how old-fashioned ideals in some case in some in some cases can be a positive thing like lord mount dunstan is the example of it being good yeah and then sir nigel is the example of that being bad and when you strip it away you're basically saying like this is a classic woman's book um this is a piece right. of classical women's writing so it's just a romance and we're taking out all of the political and historical stuff from it which is like saying to someone here read north and south but we've taken out all of the workers rights conversations right and it's it's a bit upsetting like I'm quite upset by it actually because a lot of the medieval stuff's gone which you know that's just personally interesting to me Mm -hmm. but I feel like we're doing the book a disservice and we're doing Francis Hodgson Bennett a disservice by saying like the only thing we care about in this text is whether or not she's going to bang Lord Mount Dunstan. And like, right. I am there for that. Like, <laughs> you know, front front row seats, weird thing to say. But I'm also here for the other stuff. And like, it is yeah. interesting to me. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the comparison to like North and South too is like bang on as well. And like how often do we get all up in arms when someone just says that Elizabeth Gaskell is just like a romance, you know, yeah. novelist because they've seen, I don't know, a gif from the North and South adaptation and they don't realize that that book is political and historical and important. I think as well, what, what this book's doing, and um, 
The other thing that this book does is by talking about the weaving of the shuttle going across, you know, um, between the two countries, we've got the comparison between the first Ruben Vanderpool with the first man, the God made human, um, Mm -hmm. like this pre-William the Conqueror medieval society. And it's like, we've got these two different histories as well. And we're comparing like, the new world with the old and I think cutting all of that stuff you know which they do that's it's quite stressful <laughs> like my yeah. book has got I've I've had to write in shorthand so much just into the margins of this book just to remind myself when I read it again what is missing um, I also like you're right it's going to come up again later like I don't know this for a fact I have read further than you have but and this won't be much of a spoiler um uh, MD is influenced by what she's doing in the village. Like he's taking it in, and I'm really yeah, curious to yeah, see yeah, like yeah. how he's going to apply that to his life and to his home and his property. Like how he, yeah. so yeah, it, it's all important. Yeah, and like I get it from a cost perspective, but then it's like, why are you publishing this book? What are your intentions? Um, so I don't know. I don't think I feel good about the Persephone edition this week. Wow strong words yeah sorry no i think that's entirely fair i think it's just saying i I think it's discredit discrediting women i think it's an odd choice um so other things that we lose because that wasn't it uh we lose like i said we lose a lot of g selden we lose his entire trip to the portrait hall and the feeling of being intimidated by these people that are timeless so Mm -hmm. these portraits of all of the mount dunstans from the past and all of his little jokes about some of them not being attractive and stuff and then just the kind of the feeling it has the effect it has on him and he just stands there and he's like these people are not affected by me at all which is interesting again because these people wouldn't be affected by even living it's like the plight of one poor typewriter salesman you know unmoving in in these people's eyes Uh, and all of the stuff about his slang is gone which I know Aww. from the Facebook conversation, a lot of people were not like into. But again, I thought it was interesting. And like Penzance is like, this is one of his first Americans, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. I think the slang is important too for her to weave in because it's just adding like another element to this like transnational text, right? And that is something yeah. that you pay attention to. Just it that it, that is a reality, right? Like yeah. I'm constantly... Like, what is naff? I'm constantly amused by British slang. Give me some more British slang so I can be amused. Oh, I don't know. I don't know what you... Kushti. I don't know what that means. It means like, well, good. Kushti. Well, good is British slang as well. Yeah. Yeah, we well don't do good. that one. This book's well, good. This book is Kushti, mate. <laughs> this, this book is Kushti, Yeah, I don't know geezer. I mean, I've heard it, but I don't know how to use it. My dad says geezer, unironically, and it just thrills me whenever he does. How would I use it? I mean, I can't use it. It'd sound what, ridiculous. Geezer? Right? Geezer? Just I like... don't know how to use all right. I don't see this. It's like, hey, deeper. how's it going, dude? We go, all, all right. right, geezer. All right, geez. Okay. All right. Okay. There you go. Bit the old Pompey. Bit the old Pompey for you. <laughs> Lauren, tell us about this book. <laughs> well, um, we could talk 
all day about this book. So I just um, wanted to talk about a quote that was like, it was like Francis was speaking to me when I read this quote. I was just like, oh, shit. Yeah, this is how I've always <laughs> felt. I And I'm also was like, I thought I was the only one that felt this way. No, this is not unique, Lauren. Come on. So um, this was actually just in a conversation um, that Betty and Rosalie have, I believe, before they go down to London. It's like early on in the set of chapters. And they're just talking about America. And Betty is, you know, she's energized. She's so happy to be there. She's, you know, rallying the villagers. She's like taking everybody to London. She's just like loving it. And Rosalie is, you know, she's happy, but she's cautious and she's she's tired, you know? Yeah. And um, this is uh, what Betty says to her. Changing, changing, changing. That is what it is always doing, America. We have not reached repose yet. One wonders how long it will be before we shall. Now we are always hurrying breathlessly after the next thing, the new one, which we always think will be the better one. Other countries built themselves slowly. In the days of their building, the pace of the life was a march. When America was born, the march had already begun to hasten. And as a nation, we began in our first hour at that quickening speed. Now the pace is a race. New York is a kaleidoscope. I myself can remember it wholly, as a wholly different thing. One passes down a street one day, and the next there is a great gap where there is some building to be torn down. A few days later, a tall structure of some sort is touching the sky. It is wonderful, but it does not tend to calm the mind. That is why we cross the Atlantic so much. The sober, quiet, loving blood of our forebears brought from older countries, goes in search of the rest. Mixed with other things, I feel in my own being a resentment against the newness and disorder and insistence on the atmosphere of long established things. That is like what I feel in my soul, like constantly. And I think... Getting deep. Yeah, I mean, I just, I had such a resentment from like, of like where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Um. So, you know, I I was born here in Chicago and then we left and I um, grew up just outside of Columbus, Ohio uh, from like 10 on. And we when we moved there, it was sort of a just lots of trees and forest preserves and just sort of, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. And then over the course of, I mean, the past 20 years, it's just been built up, built up, built up. And. It's just newness, constant newness. Like everyone's chasing the new thing, the next thing. Like one thing that really strikes me, and I think I may have said this on the show before, is like sometimes when I go overseas, I'm always struck by the radio. Like because you'll hear like older songs. You'll hear songs from 15 years ago. Love old songs on the radio. Yeah. We don't hear. It's like always like the top 10. Like who's like hitting the charts right now? Like who's hot right now? Like, yeah. Like, we just have no sense of history. I just feel like we're not tied to anything. Uh, So one line that I liked was, I guess most of the lines, I just liked a couple of short bits. Um, I really liked the line, it was beauty being slowly slain. I thought it was a really beautiful line. Like, it was really poetic. I think that um, a lot of scenes where Betty's talking about nature... Um, 
almost feel like it's describing Betty, like Betty is nature. So it's all about like rejuvenation, like the secret garden, stuff growing again, nature breaking through these crumbling old British houses and starting afresh and being reformed. So I don't know. I almost feel like if Frances Hodgson Bennett had been a man, she'd have been known as like a great nature writer. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But because she's a woman, it's like, oh, she writes for kids. And she writes romances. Well, the bit that I actually cut from the show this week was actually from, I think, chapter 27. And that is just a beautiful piece of nature writing. Yeah. Pretty much start to finish. And um, what, yeah, and, and it, I felt like it was actually more of a metaphor for Rosalie in that chapter. Um, the way that Betty is sort of talking about nature and having these like realizations about nature, like, oh, but, but we'll get there. And um, yeah, it's, it's great. It's, it's fantastic. She ab- absolutely is a nature writer. I would love to know from others, if you guys have read other FHB, if this kind of comes through as well in other books, because I mean, I've just read this, The Secret Garden and like The Little Princess, and I feel like all are sort of spot on. Yeah. Um, I also thought there were some good boyfriend quotes. I really liked, he would have yielded a battle axe with power in centuries in which men hewed their way in them. Also, it occurred to her, he would have looked good in, he would have looked well in a coat of mail. He did not look ill in his corduroys and gaiters. She gets 10 points because it's not chain mail. A coat of mail is the accurate medieval way of describing it. The right term. Yeah. Okay. So well done. She knows her shit. I liked that. Also, like in just really enjoying this medieval stuff. I really liked the bit where Penzance is looking at him stood by the window. And the minute he said it, I was like, he's going to say he stood like a knight. And he says that he looks as if his hand should be resting on the hilt of a sword. And I was like, I am here for this. Um, I thought this bit was pretty hot under the collar when she goes, Bettina says to him, I'm not embarrassed, said Bettina. That is what I like gruffly i am pleased in her mellowest velvet voice that you like it flirting yeah they're flirting oh yeah great real good stuff liked it i like seeing them have a flirt because i feel like these two more than in any other book it's kind of they both are acknowledging that they like the other one right and nothing's really happening but we're getting like a nice bit of open flirting instead of it being like Thornton and Margaret they're like the not flirting flirting that he's doing with his fruit basket and right right you know, yeah there's no like misunderstanding like between the two of them actually yeah, which is like, nice like they're actually yeah like these are two people that are like actually communicating and getting on well and enjoying each other's company yeah which is different for a romance um it's just taking a while for things to happen because we are like halfway through and I'm like but I think okay, like okay yeah they're just like things are happening when they're happening this isn't her priority right now which no, so I quite no. like that nothing's happening you know like because she's focused on Rosalie right yeah um and then the last line um this really stuck with me and I don't know why but it was um there is something patriarchal that moves me and it's she says that I think it's in a letter to her father but it, she's just considering like the responsibility that people have like their lordly duties to the people that are underneath them and how she's obviously like very naturally suited to it 
and just what it would be like if you were born into that position like how you must Mm -hmm. feel if like you're doing it and you're just fulfilling your birthright to do so and it's this very natural thing whereas for her it's like this unnatural thing that this young American woman is coming over and kind of doing basically what Nigel should be doing himself yeah and I thought you know obviously like the connotations of the word patriarchy now and I was like I don't know. It was nice. It's nice to see it in a way which has like positive connotations, right? Mm -hmm. There's something patriarchal that moves me. And I was like, just made me think of history and castles and, you know, I mean, the peasants revolt. People had a rough life. What am I doing? I'm romanticizing it. Anyway. Um, I did make a very flippant comment in the Facebook group that um, MD is the new John Thornton. It's very controversial. (laughs) He is my love, new John Thornton. Well, people love their John Thornton. They're like, hold up, hold yeah, up. John Thornton doesn't have a suit of mail, does he? Doesn't have a, an imaginary sword or ancestors that are from before William the Conqueror's time. Nah. Nev said that no one can match Thornton, but I will say he is giving it a good try. Actually, quite a few North and South comparisons to be made here. Betty, like Margaret, is described as queenly quite a bit which is clearly meant to mark a strength of character and independence. I would have appreciated a G. Selden in North and South, though. He livens things up considerably. Not keen on the continuing hilarity about his American slang, but he really is quite endearing. He's cute. He gets gets cuter later on. He's fine. I don't know. I liked his typewriter a bit. That was it. I was just like, cool typewriter. Where did you leave off with him? He just left. He walks into the golden light. Okay. All right. Okay. And Dunstan's like, yeah, they're all right, aren't they, the Americans? Um, another thing that reminded me and a description of like Margaret Hale was when she's hugging her dad, when she's telling him about her plan and her arm is described as being round. And I was like, bloody round arm. Because do you remember Margaret's little round hands? And do you, in, no, no, I don't. Do you but... remember that? The Victorians are like obsessed with like hands being round and I think it was like a sign of femininity. But so yeah, so I read the word like round arm and I was like, I see you. I see you. Okay, interesting. I I like what like Nev went on to to say later is like that she thinks it's a weird quirk of the era where the writer clearly wants to describe someone's like strength of character by calling them queenly. Mm-hmm. But it's just like the only acceptable way to express it. Yeah. But also, I don't know. I just, I don't know. I don't know about Betty. I think she's too much. She's too good. There's a, there's a lot of Betty descriptions in this. I haven't, I haven't been um, completely like turned on to her again this week. Because last week I wasn't entirely sure. And this week I'm like, she's really good. But she's like, she's so good, you know. Yeah. She's doing a lot of things, um, but I'm not like, I don't feel like I quite know her. Yeah. yeah. Um, there is one scene in particular we'll talk about next week that I was like, huh, that's interesting. So there's like one scene that I feel like there was a bit of a flaw with Betty. Okay. Maybe we'll there's see a, more of it, to be honest. There's a bit in when she's visiting the villages and she's like totally oblivious to the fact that her favoritism is affecting people's lives. Mm-hmm. And while she's being like really nice to one neighbor, she still hasn't called on the person that lives next door. 
Mm-hmm. And so it's like a very like sometimes she's missing the bigger picture and like obviously she can't befriend every single person but then like why is she befriending these people and is the poverty of the person that she hasn't spoken to any less and like will she have the energy to keep up that kind of relationship with the village yeah why those people so there's like a thing that she does that makes me wonder if she she likes being the little queen of the village well, well, we'll get to it, Lauren. Let me let me mm. discover it in my time. Everyone knows. Everyone listening is going to be like, I know what it is, Hannah. Um, so then Kimberly said, uh, a theme I keep seeing throughout the story that continues to be relevant today is that of how the mega wealthy... Dist- oh, this is what I was saying. <laughs> they distribute their personal wealth. What they do with the good fortune they were born into. In chapter 17, Betsy is imagining how the average working person would be tired tired of money issues uh quoting weary only of hearing of the mountains of which it rolled themselves of which rolled themselves up as it seemed in obedience to some irresistible occult force money still rolls uphill but then as she is talking with the gardener kedges in chapter 21 she sees how she as a person being born with power purely by chance might perhaps set in order a world like kedges Mm -hmm. yeah and that's why I think, like, getting rid of that Stornham Village chapter is, is like, it, that. this is the point it misses. This is, like, Betsy's kind of realisation that it's missing. And um, I was saying last week about how it felt like quite an American story, this, like, helping people build up from the ground, from the ground up. And I think yeah. it, it is a really lovely contrast between, um, like, Nigel's approach to it and and Betsy's approach to it, like... She she wants to see people that have worked hard kind of paid for what they've done. Whereas I think perhaps mm-hmm. the old English view of it would be like, well, what else were they going to do? Comment of the week, Lauren. All right. Comment of the week goes to Kimberly, Tree Song, Lore. The chapter, the political economy of Stornham was such a snarky delight, particularly when the vicar's wife wants to send old Mrs. Weldon to the workhouse. It felt so very Austin to me. The entire paragraph is perfect, but in the end, Betty gathers that the shilling a week would be a drain on the parish funds and would so raise the old creature to affluence that she would feel she could defy fate. And the contumacity, can't say that word, of old men and women should not be strengthened by the reckless bestowal of shillings. So basically what we've been talking about this whole episode. Yeah. That whole bit. Um, Yeah. Excellent. It's like Kimberly like knew what we were going to say before we said it. Well done, Kimberly. Comment of the week. She was a psychic. Um, oh, one more thing I should add, just because I looked down at my computer and I saw it still open. If anyone is interested in reading um, Godie's Ladies book, it has been archived. And I read a few articles uh, last night. Uh, it's really, really interesting. I will throw a link in the Facebook group. Um, it's just like at accessible-archives.com. But yeah, I'll throw I'll throw a link up there if you guys are interested. So yeah, if people want to see that link, where should they go, Hannah? You can find us as always on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email Lauren for the link, bonnets at dawn at gmail.com, or you can find it in the one place that Lauren said she would put it on the Facebook group by going onto Facebook, searching Bonnets at Dawn, requesting to join the group, answering the two little questions, and then being introduced to a world of like weird literary memes and um, 
chapter breakdowns which don't make any sense and that I get wrong because I'm an idiot. I'm sorry. All right, guys. Next week, we are going to talk more. Francis, it's going to get romantical. And hopefully the book will get romantical as well. Wait, we're getting romantical. The book and Francis's life. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Next week, romantical. Okay. Bye. Bye.